Welcome back to the Always Hope Podcast, a production of Willwood's Faith in Marriage. I'm your host, Dr. Mario Sacasa, and so happy to have you with me today. Oh man, I am so excited about this episode because I finally get to have on the show one of my favorite people to talk to, Dr. Tom Neal, Professor of Spiritual and Pastoral Theology at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans, Louisiana. Dr. Neal is a dear friend of mine and truly one of the wisest people that I know. We focus the conversation in this episode on the joys of being a lay person in the Catholic Church today. And since we had so much fun talking, we actually went a little bit too long. And so I thought it'd be best for you, the listener, that we broke it up into two parts. So what you're listening to right now is part one, and I promise part two will be up shortly. In this section of the conversation, however, we set the foundation by talking about the unique role of the laity in the Catholic Church. What makes the lay state distinct from consecrated life or priesthood, and how the laity consecrate the world as it says in Lumen Gentium. We also talk about how the laity can develop an authentic spirituality that is truly congruent with their state of life. If you're a lay Catholic, this is your episode on how to find God's plan in the seemingly mundane or secular circumstances of your life. Be encouraged. And if you enjoy this episode, please share with your family and friends or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Stitcher so you don't miss out on future episodes. Tom Neal, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. My dear friend, Mario. Oh my gosh. Yes. For the listeners who don't know, Tom is absolutely one of my, my closest friends. Uh, and so it is a gift to finally have him on the Always Hope podcast, which uh, I hope and I believe will be the first of many appearances oh, on this I, show. I'll be honored <laughs> and thrilled to do that. Oh man. Yeah. Because hands down, one of my favorite people to, to be able to talk to and, and engage with. We've um, had what? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of conversations over the last 20 some odd years. Oh my so, gosh. yeah, no, it, about, about a whole host of issues. Indeed. <laughs> some of which can be recorded and many of which the <laughs> mics, heavily edited. <laughs> the mics will be left off. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> so, as a first stab, I guess, as a first go on what can really kind of focus our, um, our conversation today for, mm. for this episode. Is something that I know is very near and dear to your heart. Sure. Which is talking about the lay vocation. Yes. Um, as a joke uh, for your uh, birthday party, your 50th birthday party, Patty had put out, because Tom's wife had put out these little kind of, uh, you know, uh, sheets of paper asking questions and, you know, how do you describe Tom? And, and there yes. was one question that was on there that said, uh, if Tom Neal will be is canonized at one point, who would he be the patron saint of? And I immediately wrote, uh, Lay workers in the church. <laughs> said, Tom Neal will be the, the patron saint for lay people who work for the church because <laughs> you have dedicated your life compliment, to, my to goodness. this ministry. <laughs> it's just the truth. I don't know what to say. It, it is what it is. Um, so I know you've spent a lot of time thinking about not just working in the church, but thinking about sure. what the unique gift and role that the laity have within the church, both historically, as well as in the modern context. Sure. Um, and so just generally, just kind of easing into this conversation, generally speaking, mm-hmm. what does the church say about the lay vocation? And what is the particular role that we have that's distinct then from the, the clergy in religious life? Sure. No, that, that's a, 
a, a brilliant kind of foundational question. So, so for uh, a Catholic who thinks about what the word laity means, mm-hmm. it's different than what normally in you know popular culture we think of when we say laity. So if I say, for example, um, I have a lay uh, person's understanding of medicine. Uh, what I mean is I have a non-professional understanding of medicine. In other words, I'm not a specialist. So there's there's a tendency to think of the word laity as meaning a non-specialist, right? And so the specialists in our church would be the clergy, religious and, and clergy. Uh, but that's a, that's a very impoverished uh, understanding of the laity. And I think that's one of the things that the Second Vatican Council in the 1960s uh, sought to really uh, kind of undo and give a new, fresh understanding of what laity means. So I like to, when I teach a course on this, I like to begin by saying, well, what does the word itself laity mean? The word laity itself from its, uh, its Greek stem just means people, people. And the Second Vatican Council in its document called Lumen Gentium or Light to the Nations, which is on the church, uh, begins its uh, second chapter by describing the church as the people of God. So when we say laity, what we mean really are those who have been called together in Christ in covenant uh, to be God's people, God's special chosen people, whose mission in the world is to bring the light of the gospel to the world and to consecrate the whole world and the whole of creation to God. It's a very kind of grand vision. So the word laity really is the most fundamental term that describes who we are uh, as God's people in Christ. So it's, it's a rich theological, beautiful term um, that has nothing to do with what you might say is a caste system where you have the higher people, the elite caste on top, who are the special religious specialists or the holier people. Um, and then you have the lower grade people, the, the laity out there in the world who kind of, you know, do their work and, and get along and, you know, practice basic virtue, avoid sin, um, but aren't really the ones who are considered great in the kingdom. It's not that at all. Uh, so, so laity really refers to all of the church as a whole, um, but more specifically, when we think of lay people, we think of people who obviously are not clergy or not religious, which is, you know, 99.98% of the people. So it's the vast majority of the church numerically. Uh, so, so all of us, right, in the church as a whole. Um, and the laity, there's so much we can say about it, you know, the laity's vocation is to live out the whole Christian life. But there's a kind of a unique character, the Second Vatican Council says, to the lay vocation. And let me make this distinction here. So before the Second Vatican Council, if you thought about who works in the church in terms of leadership, in terms of leading worship, in terms of really having teaching authority and teaching and preaching the gospel, uh, you know, who, who has the role uh, of, of leading the people in worship, you would think of clergy and religious. That really was their role. And of course, right. you know, especially in the United States in the 1940s and 50s especially, we superabounded in religious, which was such a gift to the church. Um, but when the Second Vatican Council came along, um, it, it kind of gave a, a fresh perspective and said, well, the lay people are also to have a role in the church, a role in terms of collaborative leadership with uh, the clergy, with the hierarchy, um, to share in the church's preaching, teaching, and governing mission. Uh, this was the first time really in a very long time in church history that the laity, who were not religious, uh, brothers and sisters, uh, were brought into the church's kind of, you might say, its ministerial life, the kind of central life of the church's uh, work of preaching, teaching, and sanctifying, uh, and were admitted into what we now call ministry. Uh, 
And I myself work in lay ministry, which means I work in close collaboration with the clergy and the formation of future priests, which is such a privilege. Um, and this, as I said, freshly opened in the 1960s and 70s to the laity kind of became this explosive thing. You know, my goodness, this is the first time the laity now have access to the inner life of the church right. and to real, real positions of influence uh, and you might say power. And that's, there's a lot of beauty and in, 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 in it's very important. And I'm privileged to be part of that. Uh, and the church wanted that to grow over time so that laity and clergy's collaboration with each other uh, would uh, flourish and grow uh, at the parish level, at the diocesan level, in Catholic schools, in Catholic hospitals, wherever that is. It's all fantastic. But the Second Vatican Council reminds us that, that that's not the primary identity, vocation, and mission of the laity. In other words, the primary vocation and mission of the laity is not uh, to immediately collaborate with the clergy in the work of ministry. That's not the vocation of the, of, of the vast majority of, of Catholics, but is to go out into the world and sanctify the secular world to, as the council says, consecrate the world itself to God by living lives fully immersed in the secular, right? In secular professions, in marriage and family life, in all the ordinary circumstances of daily life. That's primarily where the laity find their vocation to holiness realized in the world. Uh, so you have this kind of two-track uh, vision of the lay vocation that emerges after the council. One uh, uh, of lay ministry, of kind of involvement in the inner life of the church and the building up of the body of Christ, which is a, a magnificent thing. But in a sense, there's such a, a huge emphasis on that, that the other emphasis, which is the more central one, the bigger one, the more important one, which is the mission of the, of, of the faithful, of the laity out in the world, kind of out, out of the church into the world, uh, was underemphasized and undersupported um, and the number, for example, of, of programs in the church that help train and form people uh, among the lay faithful for their vocations was oh, largely focused on training people for inner church life work, ministry work. Again, important, but uh, the neglect of the, uh, the outward-focused mission, what we call the apostolate in church language, the apostolate, uh, which it really means the mission uh, of the lady in the world, in the world was underemphasized. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, let's tease both of those out. Okay. So let's focus in on then the the second part there, which you said actually is the greater emphasis, the greater with greater clarity. Sure. The laity, there's a a, a line here from the, the Lumen Gentium that I, I love and I use often is um it's the the church encourages the laity to be leaven from within. Yes. Leaven from within. Yes. What a beautiful expression when we think of the secular world in that the laity are supposed to be this hidden yeast, right? Yes. That allows then for the goodness to rise. Yes. And so as lay people living ordinary lives, worshipers living ordinary lives, right? We consecrate the world to God. Yes. And the, therefore the focus is primarily for lay people to work in the secular world, to be doctors, to be yes. lawyers, to be teachers, to be politicians, to be businessmen, because Absolutely. every aspect of the marketplace, every aspect of society needs Christ. Yes. And it's the lay people who are allowed then to bring Christ into every single one of these um, aspects of society. Yes. And also just even with communities, every community, every neighborhood needs 
Catholics needs Christians to be there yes. to to be a voice to to bring people and to evangelize and to uphold the goodness of a, of a culture. Is that right? Very well articulated. No, it's a super, it's a superb summary uh, of that second part, the apostolate. Yeah, let's focus on the second part. We'll, we'll get to the, no, f- the first part that, in, in a few minutes, also, that, which I love because that's where the focus should be. Uh, so it's excellent. So, and you're referring to Lumen Gentium, paragraph thirty-one, which is really the kind of the white-hot core of the entire Church's teaching on the laity, uh, which which lays out the fact that the laity, um, we, who are distinct from those in holy orders and religious life have what the council calls a secular genius. Mm -hmm. In other words, their unique genius is to go out into the secular world and bring the secular world in all its dimensions, the professions you you mentioned would be some great examples of that, and bring all of that into conformity with the will of God, right? Which is really when we say that the laity's mission is to consecrate the world to God, which is a beautiful phrase, Really means it. It really means this: to consecrate something means to bring it into harmony with God's will and purpose, His intention. That's what consecration is. Uh, and so, you might say the summary way of talking about what the work of consecration looks like is bringing the world in whatever aspect you're in out there uh, into conformity with divine charity, with love, right? Love of God, love of neighbor, from which everything else flows. So love is what consecrates. And I'd love to make this comparison. For example, um, in the Mass, we talk about the consecration, which everyone who's a Catholic who has even fundamental knowledge of their faith knows that the consecration is the moment when the priest, the ordained minister, speaks the words of Christ over the bread and wine, and they are transformed Mm -hmm. into Christ's body and blood. In other words, they are claimed for the new creation, for the kingdom, that the risen body of Christ is the beginning of, the genesis of. They're claimed, but they're claimed by a specific phrase or phrasing. What consecrates the bread and wine? It's the words, this is my body, which will be given up for you. This is the chalice of my blood, which will be shed for you and for all. In other words, the words and the actions that consecrate are words of self-pouring, outpouring charity or selfless love, love of God and right. love of neighbor, which the crucifixion was. So when the laity go out into the world, into all those professions, into marriage and family life, into every aspect of life out in the world and bring that spirit, that leaven, that approach, that mission um, of Christ's own self-giving love into everything they do, the world is consecrated, is claimed for the kingdom, is set apart for the kingdom, and is taken up into the kingdom, just like the bread and wine are transubstantiated. Transubstantiated, they are taken up into the kingdom of God. And that's, that's the mission of the laity. So everywhere they go out in the world, if they look, in the, look behind them at the wake they have left behind them, like a boat, if you look at the wake, the wake they should be leaving behind them is that the world they have left in their wake looks more like the kingdom. And what does the kingdom look like? It looks like the king. The way the king lived is the kingdom's uh, way of living. So that's what we leave in our wake. And in as much as we do that, um, that part of the world under our influence that we have been in and struggled and suffered to to live out the gospel in and failed and repented and, and, and stood up again, that part of the world has been claimed now for the next world, for the new creation. It has become part of the new creation. Amen. So that's that's really an extraordinary vision. It's um, beautiful. I mean, it's it's. I'm encouraged. Like I'm getting goosebumps just hearing yes. it because it's it's so encouraging. Because what it's what you're saying is 
like, yeah, theologically broad picture, what you just said, consecrating, what does that look like in particular way? Well, listen, every one of us, while we have a universal call to holiness, also have a particular invitation by God to bring that holiness into the specific circumstances that we find ourselves in. Yes. So what does that mean? That means if I'm a lawyer and a case comes by that I know in conscience I shouldn't work with, yes. or the opposite, a case that I really believe in and I'm willing to sacrifice and put my reputation on the line to do the right thing for this client, yes. you are living the gospel. If you are a, a, a wife and a mother who stays at home and in communion with other women who are there and gossip is uh, happening within the neighborhood, and you're the one who stands up and says, we shouldn't gossip about this person. Yes. Or you're the one who then invites one of the ostracized families into further fellowship within everybody else in the neighborhood. You are consecrating your world to God. Yes. If you are a businessman and you see some uh, practices that make you feel a little uncomfortable, or just even in the office, you're hearing people bad mouth or talk about people in a certain way, and you're the one who stands up to do the right thing. Yes. To use your analogy. The wake that you are leaving is a wake of love, yes. of, of charity. And that is the particular ways that each of these circumstances becomes consecrated. That's it. That's it. Those are, those are superb examples that make concrete what is uh, really a remarkably concrete teaching here in the church's vision of the laity because it is all about the details and specifics of life as to how we live this out. Love is eminently practical and concrete and specific to time and place and person and circumstance, et cetera. And, and the beautiful thing about the lay vocation because of this is that it's portable. Everywhere you go, it's there waiting for you, no matter where you are. There's no such thing as a, you know, some people think about. It's because there's sin everywhere, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes, there's sin everywhere. Are you saying there's that the cross world? will find me wherever I'm I go, sorry. Tom? Yes. Come on. Yes. You're killing me. I thought there was like utopia somewhere where yeah, I wouldn't have I to know. evangelize anymore and the kingdom was there and I could just show up and be happy. Yes. That's not there? No, it's not. I mean, every time, every time I move somewhere else, I'm hoping the cross is not there. I'm just thinking, George, Jesus, maybe there's one place in the world the cross isn't waiting for me and it still hasn't happened. So maybe one day it'll happen. No, it's always there there's always there's always something to be redeemed yes. right which is the whole point that that Christ has come into the world to redeem to take everything in this world the goodness of this world that has been covered over by the muck and grime of sin um he's come into the world to liberate that goodness that's been hidden uh and that is our mission we are his body we are his body in the world through which he continues to liberate every aspect of the world. And if we're not leaven in the world and we stay locked up in our churches and in our security all the time, and we don't go out there into that tough zone out there, which is the front lines of the church, the secular world, which is largely hostile now to Christianity, which means even better because redemption is cried out for even more, uh, you know, violently from the world. When the world hates us, what they're really saying is redeem us. Right. That's the, the, the human cry to God of rebellion is, is ultimately a cry out for, for liberation and for redemption. So, yeah, this is this is it. You know, and so I think of uh, there's so many examples I like to use. There's two examples I want. I want to use. Uh, well, I'll start with one and see how long that takes me, because I tend to go long. <laughs> uh, we can the, always edit the, the other one. <laughs> <laughs> so. <laughs> So this is really, you know, in, just to say in baptism, we are given a share in Christ's priesthood his prophetic identity and his kingship, right? So we're priests, prophets, and kings or queens, right? For women, they're queens, like Mary is queen, ensuring in Christ's own royalty. Uh, in priesthood, 
What priesthood does uh, is it allows us to share in this extraordinary capacity to mediate God to the world and the world to God. We stand as this rem- this kind of boundary layer between two worlds uh, in the world. And so everywhere we go, we have the ability to make God present and to bring the world back to God. And, and so the idea of a priest um, might make the point here, even though he's an ordained minister, he is a witness to us as to how we're to live our priesthood out. And this is Father Michael Judge, who is... Uh, well-known in 9-11, September 11th, uh, in the attacks, he was uh, the chaplain for the fire department, a Franciscan priest, Irish Franciscan priest. And uh, during, when the first, he was in the uh, one of the towers during the attacks, um, after the first attack, but before the second one, with the firefighters encouraging them. And actually, one of his job was to encourage them before they ran up the stairwell, which was really running to their certain death. He was there to, to encourage them to do this. In other words, to lay down their life. Uh, for others. Uh, and actually, when Rudy Giuliani spoke um, after 9-11, um, either at his wake or his funeral, I don't remember which, Father Michael's, he said, Father Michael, who died uh, when the first tower collapsed because uh, the debris came, blew through the windows of the other tower that he was in and cracked his skull open. Uh, and there's a beautiful picture, by the way, of five firefighters carrying his dead body to uh, St. Peter's Church, which was nearby, and laying his body at the foot of the altar, which is, by the way, the perfect symbol of the lay vocation uh, lived out to its full. But he said, he said, you know, what was it that Giuliani said, what was it that drove those firefighters to run up when everyone else was running down? And he said, what made them run up was character. And it's a character that was forged by a particular worldview that was encouraged in them by this man, Father Michael Judge. In other words, these men were seized by the vision of the kingdom of God um, and ran into the heart of evil, right? The, The threat of death. Uh, in the face of the terrorist attacks, um, knowing that it was their certain death, but but they uh, they did it, and they, they, they by by doing that, they in a sense consecrated that act uh, of murder into martyrdom. In other words, right, this is it, right? This is the this is the Christian response to murder and death is martyrdom, which is uh, which is remarkable, by the way, that in the list of all the victims of nine eleven, the first one listed is him, Father yeah. Michael Judge. He, he is the symbol uh, of exactly what the response of the Christian is. Uh, and so you might say, you know, the whole world faces a 9-11 every day, right? Uh, faces the, the hostility of others, of the world, of culture, and so forth. Um, and that our response is constantly to respond by coming in with self-giving charity, with virtue, with courage, with temperance, with, you know, justice, all those things, honesty, integrity, truth. And we bring those and we consecrate them and then we bring them to the altar, right? We lay them before the altar and we offer them up into the kingdom of God. This is, you know, this, this. so that's one very concrete example. Another one, just briefly, I'll share it, of, of how this is lived out in daily life with those beautiful examples that you gave uh, is the story of my own stepmother. My, my father died in April, um, but my stepmother, who uh, still is still alive, uh, she has, uh, she, my dad had two sons. One of them has uh, Down syndrome and uh, is autistic and just in his mid thirties, beautiful, beautiful uh, man. And a very, very loving, very affectionate, beautiful man. Anyway, uh, but, but of course she's had to dedicate her whole life to the care of, his name is Mikey, to Mikey because Mikey has a tremendous number of needs. He's got a lot of disabilities. Uh, and one of the things he struggles with is insomnia. He has a hard time 
sleeping at night. And then sometimes he goes through stretches of days where he doesn't sleep for three nights in a row, four days, three nights in a row. And that happens sometimes a couple of times a month. And he's afraid of being alone at night. So B stays up with him at night for those stretches. So she'll go without sleep for three nights in a row on a regular basis, four days, three nights in a row. Uh, and, and she's done that for years and years and years and years. And she's never, never complained about it. She'll talk about it, but she's never complained about it. And I've always thought that was remarkable the way that she loves him. And she said something to me one time about seven years ago, I was talking to her on the phone and she said, yeah, I'm, I'm in the middle of one of the stretches uh, of Mikey's not sleeping. And so if I sound a little bit off, it's why. And I told her, I said, you know, I just have to tell you, I have to compliment you just on what an extraordinary witness you are. Like whenever I think about how, how tough life might be for me, I just think of you not sleeping all the time. And I just shut my mouth uh, because, uh, that to me is is what I want to be as a parent uh, and as a man. So anyway, so I said that to her and then she kind of deflected it and she said, no, she said, no, it's no big deal. And she said, really, Mikey's the champ. Mikey's the hero. He's the one who goes through this. He's the one who has insomnia. He's the one who's afraid. He's the one who doesn't understand what's going on. I just get to walk with him. And then she said this, and this is a, my point. Um, she said, you know, I always tell your dad, if I'm ever saved, if I ever go to heaven, it'll be because of Mikey. Because Mikey taught me how to love. Mikey pulled me out of myself. And I never knew how selfish I was until he was born, how much my world was about me. And then all of a sudden, my life had to be defined by someone else. And it totally changed me. And I thought, you know, that's, that's precisely it. That woman uh, has discovered in this child, in this man, her vocation is him because he calls her. He is her vocation. He calls her to love. And by doing it, she fulfills her vocation and she consecrates. She consecrates the world. She consecrates her home. She consecrates her son and her relationship with her son. She gives him a safe place to live in, a place of love. Um, and uh, she said that same day, she said, you know, sometimes when we get to bake the bread, because sometimes in, my dad's Orthodox um, and, and my stepmom, Sometimes she said we get to bake the bread for the, for the liturgy, uh, the Eucharistic bread. They kind of go around to families and they take turns. And she says, whenever I get my chance to bake the bread, uh, it's my turn. If, if there's a stretch uh, that I'm going through with Mikey, I wait until the second night when I'm really exhausted, which is the worst. And then I bake the bread during the night. And I put into that bread all of my exhaustion and all of my son's fear and all of his pain and my dad, your dad, and everything else and I put it into the bread. And she said, you know, the most amazing thing is that when I bring it, and then on Sunday when I see it up there, and to watch it be consecrated by those words, this is my body, which is broken for you, for the remission of sins. She said, it's so awesome, because I know where that bread came from, and I know where it's going. And I thought, okay, well, you, that, that, better than anything else, sums up the entire lay vocation perfectly, uh, consummately, um, in the most specific way, but in the most universal way. And like the crucifixion, very specific event, but a universal act of love that transforms not just Jesus or the people around him, but the entirety of history, time and space, the universe itself. And those who are joined like B or my dad or myself or Mikey, to Christ and offer ourselves with him in our own acts, get to share in that. And I, so I like to say, when I use this story, I like to say, Mario, so, so therefore our vocation in life is to bake bread. That's what we do. We bake bread 
and we put all of the exhaustion in the, in the prayers, works, joys, and sufferings, everything we do, our relationships, our failures and repentance into that bread, we bring it to the Eucharistic liturgy and it gets offered up for the life of the world, to the glory of God. That's it. That's the lay vocation. Most of it's done out in the world, in the secular world, in the home, changing diapers, whatever it is, sitting in boardrooms, sweeping floors. That's where the world is consecrated. That's where the new creation is born uh, at every moment. That's our vocation as laity. That's so dignified. And when men are called to priesthood, I always say to the priest, there's no competition between your priesthood and ours. Actually, when you're ordained priests, you're ordained priests for us, for our priesthood. In other words, you exist to empower us to live our priesthood out fully and give us a place to transact with the next world, to bring everything we have and lift it into the next world. It's an extraordinary vocation that's not competitive, but just remember that ministerial and ordained priesthood exists for the sake of baptismal priesthood and not vice versa. So those, those are the things that, to me, <laughs> really capture the heart uh, and the beauty and the fire uh, of the church's vision for the lay vocation. And I'm telling you, Mario, if people out there in the pews, knew that their jobs every day out in the world, they don't do churchy things all the time, but they're in the world. If they only knew that the dignity of what they do is vastly superior, if you can even speak like that, to anything else that I would do in the church, that everything I do in the church and the churchy stuff I do for them is for them to support the greatness of their vocation. Amen. Amen. <laughs> I don't even know what to say. How do, you, how do I respond to that? How do I continue the show? What do, what do I even say to that? Oh, Lord. Tom, you blew my mind as always. This is Dr. Mario, and I'm taking a quick break from my conversation with Dr. Tom Neal to invite you to follow me on Instagram or Facebook at Dr. Mario Sacasa. I look forward to dialoguing with you on those platforms. And now let's get back into the episode. Because I work in the church, because I work in ministry, I have conversations with people who who desire to to maybe have a job where they were more at quote unquote service of the church, or that they feel that yes. oh you're not, not doing enough to serve the church because they don't work in a quote unquote ministry. Yes, and in I'm encouraged and reminded, and I say this often to them, but just even with just the beautiful words and just the, the beauty that you just spoke, to say no, like your calling <laughs> is vastly superior yes. because you're actually living in the world and engaging. And now I have ways that I engage in the secular world also through Absolutely. my profession and through other things, certainly through family life and through my kids without a doubt. It's not discredit the, the unique call that God has given me also. Absolutely. But, but primarily when the church speaks about the laity, it's not calling people to a ministerial laity, which is there. The invitation is certainly there, but primarily to a secular one Correct. where people need to work and live in the world as God has invited him to do so. Yes. And to accept that that is enough. Yes. And not just it's enough, but that it's so good and empowering and encouraging to be able to bring the gospel, to bring Christ through the gift of their baptism yes. into every single one of these circumstances. You got it. That's extremely well said. It, it, it's extremely well said. And, and I like to say, Mario, when people uh, one time... And many times, actually, this is simply an anecdote among so many. Uh, when I was at Florida State working for the Co-Cathedral of St. Thomas More, where you and I met, which yep. is a blessed place uh, uh, that we, my wife and I met at and we love, love, love. Um, 
I was working for the church at the time, and there was an older gentleman who had just come back to his faith and was getting excited to be in the faith and was in a men's group there, and, and, and I used to meet with him. And I went to lunch with him one time, and he wanted to talk about how he could you know, live his faith out more fully because he felt constrained. Um, and he was talking about how you know, he wishes he could be at church all the time, and, but his family obligations and his work keep him away. And I remember thinking, okay, this, uh, this is very early on, before I really even thought about the lay vocation in a, in a kind of deep way. And I, I thought, there's something wrong with that, right? There's the way he just said that, and I'm trying to figure out what it is. And he said to me, you know, Tom, I sure wish I could work for God like you, right? In other words, work for the church. Whereas he's, as he said, I'm stuck, you know, in a secular job. And I'm stuck, you know, I, I love my family and everything, but, you know, I, I can't do all the things here I would like to do. And I remember my instinctual reaction, and this kind of set my whole, I guess my whole passion in motion. This kind of began my quest after understanding what it was that was wrong with that statement. Um, I said to him, after he said, I wish I could work for God like you, I said, I said, no, I said, actually, I wish I could work for God like you. I mean, I, I won't say his name. I'll just say his name is John, which is not. I'll say, John, I said, John, what you're doing out there teaching in the university you're teaching in and with your family and your children and your mother whom you take care of. I said, that's the point of the whole thing. That, that, that's why we exist. And if you think that you're not being here, which I understand why you're being to be here, it's exciting and it fills you and it nourishes you. But if you think that the point is to get you in here, uh, then you've missed the whole thing. And I think that easily happens when people have conversion experiences that they quickly think, and I think Catholic culture tends to confirm this, that, that if you do churchy stuff, which is important and good, of all of that, of course, but if you do churchy stuff, that's the real God stuff. But the secular stuff, quote unquote, the stuff out there, is it best neutral and at worst hostile to what I want to uh, be about? So, uh, so I kind of get this bifurcated, right, split worldview. I, I live in these two worlds. And I think that gets into a lot of Catholics thinking. Uh, which is, again, back to the point of ministry and apostolate. Uh, ministry is superior, is a kind of a higher vocation because laity resemble clergy more, right? The more laity resemble clergy and religious, you know, the holier they are. There's that kind of undercurrent uh, that, that kind of permeates our culture. And I think the undoing of that um, and the putting it properly in, in, in terms of perspective and order, uh, I think will have an enormous impact, among other things, Mario, on the, the church's ability to influence culture, which we have lost so much ground on, um, because so many young people who are impassioned with the faith and, and, on, and on fire don't see that the vocation out into that world to bring the gospel into all those professions and places um, is most what the church needs right now. We don't need all the people who get the most fire to turn inward on the church and abandon the world. So I think that that tension really is something that I, I've dedicated my a lot of my career to trying to produce a worldview where people would see why that makes sense um, and, and expose some of the, uh, the, uh, the challenges in our thinking as Catholics that tend to prevent people from seeing that vocation out into the secular world as, as primary, as exceedingly holy, and in a sense, as the point. One of the other challenges I see, in addition to this, this elevation of ministry as being the, the more preferred state even for lay people, is uh, prayer in the spiritual life yeah. of the laity. And often there's a comparison then um, in an unhealthy way uh, that because I'm living in the lay vocation, therefore my prayer must look like 
the the clerical state as well. And if we're talking about complementarity, not competition, then the prayer or the spirituality of the laity should look distinct, should look different. That's right. Um, For example, I was in a a counseling session with a a good young Catholic here recently, and and he was struggling with whether or not he could make it to, to daily mass every day. And he was really, really feeling guilt about it. And young guy starting his career, his profession in business and, and doing some good work there. And, and he was asking me in the session if, if, if that's okay. And I was like, well, of course it is. <laughs> like, like are you making your Sunday obligation? Yes, I am. Yeah. Are you trying to say your prayers every day? Yes, I am. Do you, are you trying to love God every day? Yes, I am. Okay. You, you don't have to go to mass every single day. You're not a priest. You're not a religious. You didn't take that vow to, to say uh, the, the office of readings and the liturgy, you know, to say the prayers. That's the, the priests are called to that. Absolutely. Religious cloisters specifically are called to that. But as lay people, we have to find the balance as well. I'm not saying be a pagan or whatever. No, make God your priority. But how you're able to find that time in prayer and that time in connection with the Lord yes. is going to look distinct in your life That's right. than in the life of, of, of a consecrated person. And I think that one of the, the, the challenges is that so much of the, the great spiritual texts in the church have been written by religious. And wonderful, obviously you wrote your, your dissertation, John of the Cross. We've spoken at length about Ignatius of Loyola and his spirituality as well. But at times we find a challenge as lay people to make those points of connection or to even be reminded that they were writing to a specific group of people that are living a life and called to live a life, which is beautiful and holy and good. But that life, that state of life is very different than mine as a man who's trying to raise my kids and have to make ends meet to put food on the table to then get to basketball practice after I've worked a hard day in trying to make it all work. That's it. <laughs> so how do we well find said. a healthy spiritual yeah, life that's well or, or, or prayer or order of prayer in the midst of being called to consecrate the secular world? Yeah, that's profound. That's, and, and, you, and it was a perfect kind of uh, setup uh, the, way, the way you especially described the, the challenges of trying to imitate um, uh, a clerical or religious kind of spirituality. And, and I do think what you said, by the way, which is a, is a whole topic unto itself, which I would love to talk about sometime, which is the fact that the vast majority of spiritual literature in our church's tradition was written either by clerics or religious or for clerics and religious. So, so um, a lot of the application of what's taught in, in those texts, although all of it, you know, Christian spirituality is a universal thing. We don't have a, a lay spirituality that's so different from clerical spirituality that you can't really compare them. There's there's a common ground among all of them, obviously. Which is called Jesus. Exactly. <laughs> which is called Jesus. Which is called intimacy with the person of Christ. That's that's, that's it. it. You got it. Bottom through, line right through there. Through the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Absolutely. So fundamentals that, that unite all of us. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you have all of that. But there there is a, an absolute distinctiveness. Uh, and the point you make, for example, about you know the pressure to go to daily mass or the desire to go to daily mass. I mean, daily mass is a beautiful thing. And I try to make it as often as I can. Of course. Of course. Uh, and, and Eucharistic adoration. I love Eucharistic adoration. It's, it's profoundly nourishing. I know you, you I have, have my that. hour. We, I have my, whole, my weekly yeah, holy hour that exactly. I make a sacrifice for every, every Monday night. You got it. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, th- so those are important. But, but what, uh, what you might say, and this is what the, the Second Vatican Council tried to emphasize, again, back to the primacy of baptism, uh, is that um, because of baptism and confirmation, and if you're married, the sacrament of holy matrimony um, because of those sacraments, we ourselves bear within us the entire mystery, right? 
The whole thing, the whole mystery is already within you, within us. As, um, the Eastern Church loves to say the kingdom of God is not only among you, but the kingdom of God is within you, right? Uh, in baptism, we are made temples of the Holy Trinity. So in me is the entire mystery. As a matter of fact, when we think about the, the importance and the centrality of the Eucharist and the presence of Christ in the Eucharist, and we go to Mass to be present to Christ in the Eucharist, and we go to adoration to be present to Christ in the Eucharist, the Eucharist really exists with one goal, and that's to be ingested, be eaten and drunk. In other words, to be internalized, because the mystery is within. So if you're a lay person and you're faithful to your Sunday, uh, your Sunday litur liturgical um, um, uh, obligation and all the, the beauty of what we talked about already, about the connection between the mass and, and, the, and the life of the daily life of the laity, um, if you are aware throughout the week um, of the fact that you bear within yourself the entire mystery of the kingdom within you at every moment, uh, and that you are joined to Christ as his body, um, and that you are the vehicle and means by which God enters into the world, and so forth, you're aware of that, then all of a sudden everything you do becomes spiritually charged. Everything you do becomes an opportunity to mediate God to the world, to bless the world with God's own presence, and to lift that world back to God, right? Everywhere you go, and especially connected to your primary obligations. So if you're in a family, your wife, your wife, uh, if you are married uh, in a sacramental marriage, your marriage itself um, is a sacrament, which means it is an efficacious uh, sign and instrument of grace, of Christ's presence. Your being a parent to your children is, is absolutely filled with grace. You get to mediate God's fatherhood to them uh, and being present to them and blessing them. So, so Christ is everywhere. Christ above you, Christ below you, Christ by your left, uh, your right. Uh, Christ is everywhere around you. You don't need to look for him and search for him in a church only. He's all over if you become aware of that. So that really becomes the, the heart of the lay vocations understanding of prayer is that your prayer can happen everywhere and anywhere. Any place that you can uh, discover Christ, you can pray. You can enter into communion and conversation with him. Uh, and, and a lay vocations prayer has to be suited to the demands of their life. How much time you spend in prayer, what kind of prayer you do. Um, there's one woman I know who has quite a number of children. She homeschools. She's overwhelmed. And she used to feel guilty about not being able to go to daily mass and not being able to dedicate large amounts of time like she had before she had children to prayer. And so she felt, you know, kind of guilty about that. And she went on a retreat once. Her husband sent her on a retreat. She went to a Carmelite monastery. She went to speak to one of the sisters for spiritual direction. And the sister said, look, if you spend five minutes in the bathroom, locked in there away from your children and give that to the Lord, that's worth eight hours of my time, which is leisure time dedicated uh, to prayer. God will accommodate himself to you and outpour himself into you when you give him what you have. It's like the, it's like the widow's two cents. Absolutely. You give him what you have uh, and the rest of it, right? The rest of it, it, it is exactly the, 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 the fruit of, of mission, which is loving, loving God, loving neighbor in your children and what you do every day. So, so that was very liberating for it. Then there's another story that makes the point as well. Another woman I knew no, knew, uh, in uh, Iowa when I lived up there. And she was um, growing up in the, her 20s when she was in college. She had a conversion experience at a retreat and got involved in the charismatic renewal and was very much involved in charismatic prayer for her group in her parish. And then she got married and then she had children. 
And when I met her, she had children at that point, and they were a, a grown. Uh, I think they were in their teens uh, at that point. But she told me that when she began to have children, she found that her prayer life was kind of, you know, withering up. She wasn't able to pray like she was used to. She used to go to church all the time. She used to spend every morning a whole hour, an hour and a half in devotional prayer and praise and worship. And now were there children that had been shrunken down. And as her children were born one after another, and she just had her third at this point, the story she's gonna, she shared with me, um, she began to grow um, angry, angry with God, angry with her children, because she felt that, she said, even though I knew intellectually it was not true, it felt like my children were bringing, leading me away from God. And I couldn't reconcile that. I didn't understand how God could allow that to happen. Um, and so she said one night when her newborn third child was uh, woke up about two in the morning and, and she was nursing and she just felt overwhelmed, of course, you know, exhausted after the, you know, the birth and, 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 the, and the first months of no sleep, but just overwhelmed with sadness and anger mixed together. And she said, I was just sitting there in the dark nursing my baby and I was crying and tears were just streaming down my face. And I just said in a low voice to God, I said, um, uh, I need more. Uh, why have you left me? And she said, in my kind of charismatic mode, I heard this word of knowledge inside of me that I had not heard in a very long time, the Lord's voice. She said that, that for me was, I believe was him because it left me with such extraordinary peace. And the words were this, as my child was nursing, I heard the words, thank you for feeding me. Thank you for feeding me. And she said, I just, it, it, I went from the darkness of anger and, and, and quasi despair to this extraordinary sense of joy that I suddenly realized that my child was not an obstacle, that actually my child, communion with my child, loving my child was intimacy with Christ all in one. I'd never seen it before. Could have said I understand it. I, maybe I could have said it to you intellectually, but I'd never felt it before that moment. And then from then on, she said, everything opened up and nothing became an obstacle for me anymore. I could find him present in all the things that I used to thought kept me from him. So, so discovering your prayer life, wherever you're at, making sure you commit to praying, setting aside time as you're able to every day. It's not that you just get sloppy, uh, but committing to that and then uniting your prayer life with your commitments in your state in life, with your job, your, your relationships, your, your, you know, if you deal with illness, whatever it is, that those things get caught up into your prayer life and get taken up as part of your offering. That, that really is the heart of what I call a lay spirituality. The word that keeps coming to my mind with each of your stories and teachings here is comparison and the danger of comparison. The danger when I, as a lay person, compare myself to the clerical state. Or when I, as a lay person who's working in a primarily secular job, compare myself to somebody who's in a ministerial state of laity. Or even when I, as a person who's on a journey of faith, compare my life right now to what my life used to be. Mm. That there's danger in each one of these comparisons mm. because they dismiss or disregard the particular grace of where I am at today. Mm. So when it comes to the question of prayer uh, in the lay vocation, Recognizing that where I am right now in my 20s or 30s or 40s as I'm trying to raise a family is different than where I was as a teen or my early 20s before I had kids, but it's also different than where I may be when I'm in my 60s and 70s and my kids are grown. That's right. You'll have more of an opportunity to do the daily mass then, 
or the regular rosary because there's an invitation at that state of your life that's different than the invitation that you have right now. And just to rest and recognize that we're you're just trying your best. And God knows that. And so to, to stop comparing yourself with other states of life or other stages of your own life and just accepting where you're at right now is, is a real gift. All right, part one is done. Stay tuned for part two of this episode, which I promise will be up shortly. In part two, we shift and have an honest conversation about what it means to be a layperson working in the church. And you don't want to miss Dr. Neil's thoughts on how the laity should respond to the church scandal. And remember, Always Hope is a production of Willwood's Faith in Marriage. Check out our website, faithinmarriage.org, for more great content on how living with faith can improve your life and relationships.